Recorded live. Hey guys, it's uh, Chris again. And I'm going to be reading out of this book, uh, The Origin of Pagan Idolatry, Ascertained from Historical Testimony and Circumstantial Evidence, Part 1, again. It's by uh, George Stanley Faber. And so this is going to be a continuation of the uh, last reading. So let's see here where I left off. I think I was on number 14 is where I left off. So it says, uh, Yet however common these speculations might be, the Hierophants seem to have been aware that the union of the great father and the great mother was purely allegorical and therefore altogether imaginary. Neither the earth nor the ark produced their mystic offspring, animal and vegetable, in consequence of any real marriage with Adam or Noah. On the contrary, they each brought forth the great father himself and the whole race of their metaphorical children without any cooperation of a husband demon god. Hence originated a very remarkable opinion, which was occasionally entertained respecting the character of the great mother. She was by some theologians esteemed a great virgin, and was thought by her own energy alone to have given birth to the principal hero deity. At the same time, we are left in no doubt how we ought to interpret this fable, for it is usually blended inseparably with some legend, which either refers the god thus miraculously produced to the period of the deluge, or describes him as having been once set afloat in an ark on the surface of the ocean. This speculation, like the two which have been last noticed, was reduced to practice, so far as it was capable of being thus reduced, by one remarkable class of ancient priestesses. In imitation of the supposed virginity of the Great Mother, colleges of sacred maids under a regular monastic discipline were established, and whether in the old continent or in that of America, a breach of their vows of chastity was visited by the most severe and horrible punishment. Number 15, upon the imputed characters and imagined relationship of the great father and the great mother was founded the whole machinery of the pagan mysteries, whether Mithratic, Eleusinian, Isaic, Kabiric, or by whatever other name they might be designated. The egress of Noah from the ark was considered in the light of a new or second birth, by which he was introduced into a state of fresh existence. Hence, he was frequently represented as an infant, either exposed on the summit of a mountain in allusion to Ararat, or set adrift on the ocean in a small ark, or floating helplessly in the expanded calyx of the mysterious lotus. Those who were initiated sought to imitate this allegorical birth of the god. Accordingly, the... Epopte were invariably supposed to have experienced a certain regeneration by which they entered upon a new state of existence and were fantastically deemed to have acquired a great increase of light and knowledge. Hitherto they were exoteric and profane. Now they became esoteric and holy. 
this regeneration of the mysteries was effected by sundry different processes, equally wise and equally edifying. Sometimes the aspirant had to fight his way through fire and water to endure the most rigid fasts and penances and to encounter all the horrors of darkness and all the yells of infernal apparitions. At other times he had to brave the edge of the opposing sword or to submit patiently to the strictness of a solitary confinement. Such, however, were only the preludes to the initiatory rite, and they were designed to prove the fortitude of the votaries, as that of Noah was proved during his awful and perilous seclusion within the ark. The rite itself consisted sometimes in the aspirants being born, as it were, out of a small covered boat, in which he had been previously committed to the mercy of the ocean, sometimes in his being produced from the image of a cow, within which he had been first enclosed, and sometimes in the coming forth through the door of a dark rocky cavern or artificial stone cell in which he had been shut up during the time appointed by the Hierophant. Of these three modes of regeneration, that by the boat sufficiently explains itself. Nor need there much be said respecting that by the cow. From the earliest times, the ark was symbolized by that animal. Consequently, the birth from the cow meant the very same as the birth from the boat. But the origin of regeneration by the cavern is not at first sight quite so obvious. It is capable, however, of being easily elucidated by certain other remarkable phrases employed by the hierophants as synonymous with those which describe their allegorical new birth. The principal demon god was not only said to have existed in a prior state as a venerable old man, and then to have returned to infancy and youth by second nativity, but he was likewise described as having been lost and then found, as having died and then experienced a wonderful revival, as having been shut up in a coffin, or as having descended into the infernal regions and then returned in safety to the light of day. Sometimes also he was represented as having been wrapped in a profound sleep and as floating in that condition on the surface of the ocean, during the period which elapsed between the destruction of one world and the formation of another. At the, at the end of that period, when the new creation at length appears above the water in youthful beauty, the god awakes, and quitting the vehicle on which he reposed, whether the mysterious lotus or the sacred aquatic serpent coiled up so as to exhibit the form of a boat, assumes, its govern, assumes the government of the renovated world. All these different images meant the very same thing, and the variety seems to have arisen from the mixed character of the Great Mother, who was at once the megacosm and the microcosm, the earth and the ark. When the doctrine of a succession of similar worlds was adopted, and when the tenet of the metempsychosis was superadded to it, death was naturally esteemed nothing more than the prelude to a renewed life and that renewal was indifferently considered in the light of a resurrection from the dead or a new birth from the grave. Such speculations exactly suited the identification of the earth and the ark in the person of one great universal mother. The entrance of Noah into the ark corresponded with the entrance of Adam into the earth, but the entrance of Adam into the earth was his burial, hence the entrance into the ark was also deemed a burial, or an enclosure within a coffin, or a descent into the gloomy regions of Hades. 
and the person who thus entered was considered as one that died or was plunged in a deep, death-like sleep. Adam, however, the first great father, was thought to have reappeared in the person of Noah, the second great father. Hence, the egress of Noah from the ark was esteemed a revival or a resurrection or a return from the infernal regions. On the other hand, the enclosure of Noah within the ark was said to be his enclosure within the womb of the great mother, and consequently his exit to be a birth from that womb. Hence, the burial of Adam was considered only in the light of a temporary return to the womb of his primeval parent, from which in due time he was destined to be born again at the commencement of another world. This being the case, the interior of the earth and the interior of the ark were, by a mystic intercommunion of terms, indifferently called the womb of the great mother and the infernal regions, and the same God who had floated in an ark upon the sea, who had experienced a wonderful second birth, who had been lost and found again, who had died and revived, was constantly either esteemed an infernal deity, or was said to have descended into Hades, or was reputed the president of obsequies and the sovereign lord of departed spirits. Now, whatever the aspirants scenically represented in the mysteries, the god himself was believed to have previously undergone. He was thought to have been slain by the mighty enemy that overwhelmed the primeval world, to have been set afloat when dead in an ark which was deemed his coffin, and to have afterwards returned to life, and thus to have been born again out of the boat in which he had reposed on the surface of the mighty deep. He was likewise supposed to have been shut up in the hollow interior of a wooden cow, which is explained to be the same as his ark, and which accordingly is designated by the appellation of Theba. And thus, as he was born again from the ark, to have been similarly born again from the cow. He was further celebrated... He was further celebrated as the god who was born out of a rock or who sprang from the door of a sacred rocky cavern within which he had for a season lain concealed. Now, Pophyri assures us that the holy grotto was a symbol of the world, and the whole analogy of paganism proves him to be right in his assertion. The gloomy interior, therefore, of the grotto must have represented the gloomy central cavity of the earth, but that cavity was the womb of the Great Mother, and the Great Mother was not only the earth, but likewise the ark. Hence, the sacred cavern must additionally have represented the interior of the ark, and its door, through which both the god and the aspirant were equally supposed to be born again, must have shadowed out the door of the ark. Accordingly, the same god and the same imitative aspirants who are sometimes said to have been born from a boat or from a floating machine which bore some resemblance, real or imaginary, to a cow, were also thought to have been regenerated by emerging to open day through the door of a gloomy cavern. But if the birth of the very same characters from the ark or the cow was the same as their birth from the cavern, then the ark, the cow, and the cavern must mean one and the same thing. And that this was the case appears in a very remarkable manner from there being exactly the same intercommunion of attributes between the sacred cavern and the ship of the principal hero god as there is between the earth and the ark. An ancient opinion prevailed that the primeval grotto was situated in the deep recesses of the ocean, 
that on every side it was encompassed by the raging waves, and that once in a season of peculiar danger, the great father concealed within its sheltering womb his children, who consisted of three sons and three daughters. On the other hand, a curious legend has come down to us, which teaches that the ship of the same great father was once changed to stone in the midst of the sea, by which metamorphosis it, of course, became a rocky cavern. And we perpetually find a notion predominating both that the goddess, whose peculiar form or symbol was a ship, delighted to dwell in a consecrated grotto, and that the god, who was exposed in an ark, was born or nursed in a cave, said to be situated on the summit of a lofty mountain, the transcript of Ararat. Two, we must now turn our attention to another great branch of ancient mythology, as dif differing essentially in some respects from demonolatry, yet most curiously and inseparably blended with it. The branch of which I speak is astrolatry, or Sabianism, that is to say, the worship of the sun, the moon, and the host of heaven. Number one. The Hierophants of old appear to have been very early addicted to the study of astronomy, though unfortunately, instead of pursuing their researches in a legitimate manner, they perverted them to the vain reveries of magic and prostituted them to the purposes of idolatry. As they highly venerated the souls of their paradisiacal and archite ancestors, considering them in the light of demon gods who still washed and presided over the affairs of men, it was an easy step in the process of apostate error to imagine that they were translated to the heavenly bodies, and that from those lofty stations they ruled and observed all the passing events of this nether world. When such a mode of speculation was once adopted, whatever virtues might afterwards be attributed to the planets, and in whatever manner the stars might be combined into mythological constellations, the first idea that must obviously have occurred to the astronomical hierophants would undoubtedly be this. Since they perceived the sun and the moon to be the two great lights of heaven, and since they worshipped with an especial veneration the great father and the great mother, they would naturally elevate those two personages to the two principal luminaries. Such, accordingly, was the plan which they adopted. Those ancient writers who have treated on the subject of pagan mythology assures us that by which was called a mystic theocrasia, all the gods of the Gentiles ultimately resolve themselves into the single character of the great father, and in a similar manner all their goddesses into the single character of the great mother, and they further declare that as all their gods melt insensibly into one, they are all equally the sun, and as all their goddesses no less melt into one, they are all equally the moon. Yet notwithstanding these avowed and recognized doctrines, the gods of the Gentiles are allowed to have been the souls of their ancestors and are described as having once acted a conspicuous and sufficiently intelligible part upon earth. The only conclusion that can be drawn from these apparently opposite declarations is that the demon gods were worshipped in the heavenly bodies, and agreeably to such a conclusion, we are unequivocally told that the souls of certain deified mortals were believed to have been elevated after their death to the orbs of the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars. 
Hence originated the notion that all those celestial bodies, instead of being mere inert matter, were each animated by a divine spirit, or each a wise and holy intelligence. Down here in a footnote it says, This notion was combined with paganism even to the very last. Nay, there are not wanting instances of both Jews and Christians being led away by it. Philo ventured to adopt the pseudo-philosophical speculation, and the learned origin was seduced to assent to his opinion. For this he was anathematized by Pope Vigilius, or Vigilius, Vigilius, and it would have been well if the Romish church had always as carefully guarded herself against the contamination of paganism. All right, hold on, guys. I'll be right back. All right, sorry about that. So, to continue, where was I? Let's see. Okay, so, the consequence of this astronomical refinement was the introduction of the whole history of the demon gods into the sphere, and with it perhaps every opinion that was in any way connected with that history. It is most curious and interesting to trace the matter and its various ramifications. Number two, as the Great Father was peculiarly venerated in the Son, whatever symbol represented the Great Father represented also the Son, and whatever was predicated of the Great Father was likewise predicated of the Son. So intimately were they united in the reveries of the ancient hierophants that their characters are perpetually blended together. And thence, what can only be properly said of the Son is said of his human associate, the Great Father. And what can only be properly said of the Great Father is said of his celestial vehicle, the Son. Thus we are told, on the one hand, that the Son was a husbandman, that he was born out of the, out of the deluge, that he sailed in a ship over in a ship over the surface of the ocean, that he was produced like an infant out of the womb of its mother, from the calyx of the mystic lotus, while it floated on the bosom of the mighty deep, that he was born from the door of a rocky cavern, that he slept during the interval between the destruction of one world and the creation of another on the folds of a huge water serpent coiled up in the shape of a boat and thus safely supporting him on the top of the waves 
that he once saved himself from the fury of the ocean by taking refuge in a floating island, that he reigned upon earth after the flood, the most ancient sovereign of the post-Diluvian world, that he was once actually drowned in the sea, and that the present sun had been preceded by a succession of others, each of which perished when the world over which he presided perished. On the other hand, we are told that the human being who was saved in an ark when all the rest of mankind was were destroyed by the waters of a flood was either a child of the sun or the sun himself or an emanation of the sun. Or a being compounded of a man and the sun, that the same personage is, is personage is the king who rises in light and ascends the vaulted sky, that he is the sovereign of heaven, radiant with celestial splendor, that he is the sacred fire which warms and animates the circle of the universe. Number three. The same observations equally apply to the mythological character of the other chief luminary of heaven. As the great mother was peculiarly venerated in the moon, whatever symbol represented the great mother represented also the moon. And whatever was predicated of the great mother was also predicated of the moon. But the great mother was a compound character, uniting in herself both the earth and the ark. Hence we find various matters attributed to the moon which properly belong not to that body, but either to the earth or to the ark. The great mother was symbolized in every quarter of the globe by a cow, yet while the old mythologists tell us that a cow is the symbol of the earth, they also tell us that it was equally a symbol of the moon, and they complete the whole by assuring us that a cow is mystically denominated Theba, which properly signifies not a cow, but an ark exactly correspondent with this intercommunion of symbols and the most remarkable action ascribed to the Great Father. Sometimes he is said to have descended into the infernal regions. Sometimes he is said to have been shut up in an ark. Sometimes he is said to have been enclosed within a wooden cow. And sometimes he is said to have entered into the moon. All these different Matters were asserted of the Egyptian Osiris, and they are all, and they all at the bottom meant the same thing. They meant the two successive entrances of the Great Father in his two successive characters of Adam and Noah into the womb of the Great Mother, the grave, and the ark. Hence, we are told that the ark of Osiris was sometimes made to resemble a cow in form, and sometimes the crescent which the moon exhibits during her first and last quarters. The consecrated living cow, denominated Theba, was herself also studiously managed so as to display the same appearance of the moon. The figure of a crescent was artificially impressed upon her side, and her horns themselves, even naturally exhibiting that figure, were filed and cut and polished so that they might present it to the beholder with the greatest possible degree of accuracy." I have to say, too, it's interesting that uh, Osiris might have derived from Noah in that he was said to have been placed within an ark or within a coffin. And actually, if you watch the uh, the latest Noah movie, 
it's called Noah, the one that just came out pretty recently. Uh, the arc in that movie is actually depicted to look like almost exactly like a coffin, just like a rectangular coffin. So I find that pretty interesting, the correspondence there <clears throat> between the two characters. Agreeably to the same astronomico-symbolical speculation, the moon was represented by the ancient mythologist sailing in a ship, and that very goddess, whose peculiar symbol was a ship, who is said during the period of the deluge to have successively assumed the forms of a ship and of a dove, who is described as being born from the ocean and whose womb is declared to have once been the common receptacle of all the demon gods, is yet asserted to be sidereally the moon. So again, we find a notion prevalent that the moon is of an aqueous nature, that she was born or produced out of the retiring waters of the deluge, that she presides over navigation, and that she might justly bear the title of the queen of the waves. All these characteristics are perfectly intelligible if we suppose that the moon is only intended so far as she is the type of the ark, but they are anything but they are anything rather than intelligible if we imagine the literal moon in the firmament to have been thus described by the ancient mythologists. We are not, however, to forget that the great mother whose astronomical symbol was the moon was the earth, no less than the ark. Hence we find that certain characteristics of the earth are ascribed to the moon, as well as those by which the ark is specially designated. <clears throat> The moon, though she literally rides high in the heavens, is yet made an infernal goddess. As such, she is sometimes secreted in a gloomy grotto, and sometimes placed in the central cavity of the earth, where she presides over those mighty waters which support the ship of the infernal ferryman, and which once burst forth to overwhelm an impious race of giants that were feigned to have contended in arms with the eight primeval demon gods. With a similar allusion to her earthly character, the streams of the deluge itself, which retired in every direction from the summit of the Archite Mountain by the channels of the Four Rivers of Paradise, are said to have burst forth in the first instance from her hollow womb. Such opinions require little comment. When the astronomical hierophants chose to place the Great Mother in the sphere, perhaps they could not have found a type more accurately shadowing out her double character than that which analogy itself led them to pitch upon. While the circle of the full moon exhibits the form of the sacred mundane circle, the beautiful crescent of the first and fourth quarters present the figure of a boat, and thus aptly represents the ship of Noah. That this idea is not purely imaginary, but that the ancients had really observed the resemblance between a boat and the lunar crescent is manifest from the shape which they attributed to the Ark of Osiris. Both the Ark in which the god was enclosed and the commemorative Ark, which was borne by the priests in the celebration of the mysteries, was formed like the kind of ship which the Latins call Biprora, and the Greeks Amphiphrymenias. Its figure, in short, was precisely that of the modern lifeboat, it might, however, have been supposed that the choice of such a form was purely accidental, and consequently that it had no intentional reference to the lunar crescent, 
but this supposition is effectually prevented by the express declaration that the Ark of Osiris was shaped like the moon, and by the assertion that he equally entered into a luniform arc, into a heifer whose horns represented the lunar crescent, and into the moon herself. Hence it is evident, if we strip off the disguise of a mystic astronomical jargon, that the entrance of the god into the moon means only his entrance into a boat shaped like the moon, and that the form of a crescent was given to the boat because the hierophants had observed the general resemblance between a boat and the lunar crescent. Number four. Having thus disposed of the two great luminaries in particular, the astronomical mythologists next directed their attention to the solar system in general. They observed, according to the imperfect degree of science then possessed, that there were seven planets over which the sun appeared to preside as a sovereign and moderator. The number coincided too exactly with their Diluvian speculations to be overlooked, for it answered minutely to that of the seven holy persons who were preserved in an ark with the great Father, and who constituted with him at their head the eight primeval demon gods of Egypt. Such being the case, as the Hierophants had been before likened the earth to a ship, because the character of their great mother was of a mixed nature, and because the antediluvian world, like the post-diluvian, commenced from an Ogdoad, so they now apply the very same comparison astronomically. It is a most curious circumstance, though perfectly according with that system which sought inseparably to blend together Sabianism and demonolatry, that the ancient mythologists considered the whole frame of the heavens in the light of an enormous ship. In it they placed the sun as the fountain of light and heat, and assigned to him as the acknowledged celestial representative of the great father the office of pilot. But he was not a solitary mariner in the huge ship of the heavens. Seven planetary sailors who were brethren and who resembled each other by partaking of a common nature were his eternal companions. With these, he performs his never-ending voyage, and thus, from year to year, exhibits to the eyes of mortals the fortunes of their Diluvian ancestors. It is easy to see that this astronomical refinement is in a considerable degree built on an extension of the idea affixed to the term world. The ark was a world in miniature. The earth is a greater world, but the universe is the greatest, and therefore the only proper world. Hence, they are manifestly analogical to each other, and hence a sort of mystic intercommunion was thought to subsist between them. This eminently appears in the circumstance of both the earth and the universe being compared to a ship. But it is not only the earth and the... But it is not the only circumstance in which the prevalence of the same notion may be detected. The enclosure of the ark was called the circle of the world, the name of the goddess to whom that circle is sacred literally denotes the world, and the circle itself was sometimes remarkably denominated the ark or ship of the world. 
Yet the circle represented not only the enclosure of the ark and the ring exhibited by the sensible terrain horizon, it also symbolized that circle in the heavens in which the sun revolves during his apparent progress through the signs of the zodiac. Number five. As for the stars, the only use which the Hierophants could conveniently make of them in the furtherance of their system was to arrange them in constellations and to ascribe to each group an imaginary form and character which might best suit their purpose. And this was the precise course which they followed. The tales of pagan mythology have been transferred to the sphere, and the whole face of heaven has been disguised by the forms of men and women, beasts and birds, monsters and reptiles. Yet these were not without their signification, as the heavens in general were compared to a vast ship manned by eight sidereal mariners. So, without pretending to decipher every castasterism, we might at least venture to say that the stars in various different modes have been employed to relate the history of the deluge. Since that awful history is thus written in the sphere, and since each star was thought to be animated by an intelligence whose mortal body had once lived upon Earth, we may readily perceive whence all the follies of judicial astrology have originated. Because the events of the deluge were commemoratively inscribed on the heavens, it was supposed that every passing event might literally and prophetically be traced either in the constellations or in the conjunctions of the planets. And because the stars were believed to be animated by the souls of the demon gods, it was concluded that these speculators of the heavens, as they have been called by an ancient Phoenician mythologist, still overlooked and influenced the affairs of men. It says down here in a footnote that the souls of the hero gods were thought by the Egyptians to have migrated into the stars is expressly asserted by Plutarch. Such pagan absurdities continue to prevail long after the introduction of Christianity, and even at the present day, the race of stargazing impostors fed by the silly credulity of the vulgar is not altogether extinct. So here we have another footnote. It says, Astronomy, thus blended with hero worship, certainly originated at Babylon, agreeably to the very just remark of Herodotus that the Egyptians received it from the Babylonians. This was the primeval sinner, whence, with the prevailing system of theology, it was carried to all parts of the world. Accordingly, Mr. Bailey has observed that several ancient nations, such as the Chaldeans, the Egyptians, the Indians, and the Chinese, though seated at a greater distance from each other, possessed astronomical formulas common to them all. These were handed down to them by tradition from some general course, for they used them as our workmen use certain mechanical or geometrical rules without any knowledge of the principles on which they were originally constructed. <clears throat> our present sphere is in the main the same as that of the old Babylonians, Indians, and Egyptians, from whom no doubt the Greeks received it.
Okay. So, continues. Number six. Such and so intimate being the union of Sabianism and demonolatry, whatever properly belonged only to the latter was transferred with most curious systematical regularity to the former. The great father was esteemed a hermaphrodite, and the great mother was, in like manner, thought to partake of both sexes. Consequently, in this respect, their characters intimately blended together, and each became, in some sort, the same as the other. From the two great parents, the idea was extended to their celestial representatives. The sun was reckoned sometimes male and sometimes female, and there was a god moon, no less than a goddess moon. Helios and Lunas were equally the great father, for we are assured that the very masculine deity who was venerated in the sun was yet the same as the lunar god, and Helia and Luna were equally the great mother. Though the character of the solar goddess occurs much less frequently than that of the lunar goddess. The only difference in short between them was this. Each equally represented the same compound character, but in the hermaphroditic son we behold the great father presiding over the great mother, while in the hermaphroditic moon we behold the great mother supporting the great father. Agreeably to this mixed and united character of each, and still in perfect accordance with the attributes of those earthly personages whom they represented, the sun was feigned to have mysteriously triplicated himself, and the moon was also thought to have branched out into three forms or natures. So likewise the sun was supposed to have been born out of a rocky cavern, and a sacred grotto was deemed the most appropriate temple for the worship of the moon. A similar correspondence may be observed in almost every other particular. The sun and the moon were peculiarly venerated on the tops of mountains and of pyramidal buildings constructed in imitation of mountains, because every such sacred mountain and pyramidal edifice was deemed a copy, as we are unequivocally assured, of the primeval archite mount of paradise, that favorite abode of the great father and the great mother. The sun and the moon, strange as it may at first appear, were thought to be infernal deities, because the great father and the great mother were reckoned deities of Hades. The sun and the moon were each supposed to be furnished with a a gate or door, through which, and likewise through the similar doors of the planets, transmigrating souls were feigned to be born during their sidereal progress towards perfection. Because there was a door in the side of the ark through which the noetic family were born into a new state of existence, and because every sacred cavern had a door by passing through which aspirants were believed to procure the benefits of a mysterious regeneration. On the same principle, we may account for another curious opinion entertained respecting all the celestial luminaries. They were equally thought to have sprung out of the chaotic fluid in which the earth floated, as it were, both at the time of the creation and of the deluge. They were supposed to be intelligent animals produced out of unintelligent unintelligent animals, and they were said to have been all formed alike in the shape of an egg. The notion doubtless originated from the circumstance of an egg being employed to symbolize both the world and the ark. By the mystic Theocrasis, so familiar to the ancient mythologists, each luminary taken separately 
represented the primeval hermaphroditic deity who united in his own person the blended characters of the great father and the great mother. Hence, each was born out of the aqueous fluid. Each from non-intelligence became endowed with intelligence. And each had attributed to it the form of that egg, out of which the principal demon god and the three kings into whose persons he multiplied himself were feigned to have been born by a certain ineffable generation. In exact accordance with this speculation, the Hierophants invented a curious legend which describes the Dioscori or Kabiri as produced from a wonderful egg and its family or that fell out of the moon. Now, the Kabiri were evidently the great father and his family, and the egg out of which they were born was the acknowledged symbol of the great mother. Yet the moon, for reasons which can now be scarcely misunderstood, is immediately connected with that egg. Thus exact throughout is the correspondence between Sabianism and demonolatry. Each answers to each with the minute accuracy of the parts of a severed indenture, or a severed indenture. All right, so, number three, or part three. The union of Sabianism and demonolatry engendered materialism, but it was a materialism of such a nature as faithfully to preserve the lineaments of its parents. Number one. When all things were supposed to be produced from the conjunction of the great father and the great mother, and when these were elevated to the sun and moon, or were thought in their different emanations to animate the starry host of heaven, it was an easy step to adopt the opinion that the various parts of creation were but so many members, or, as they were sometimes called, forms of the universal compound hermaphroditic deity. All nature was produced from him and returned to him. All nature was his body, and his pervading spirit was the soul of the world. Yet the name which was given to this soul seems not obscurely to point out the character chiefly intended by it. The import of the Greek nous and of the Sanskrit menu is precisely the same. Each denotes mind or intelligence, and to the letter, latter of them, the Latin mens is evidently very nearly allied, or to speak more properly, Men's and menu, perhaps also our English mind, are fundamentally one and the same word. Yet I strongly suspect that the idea of intelligence, which all these terms equally convey, is but a secondary and acquired sense. The question will still recur why intelligence has been called noose or menu or men's or mind. The name seemed to me to have been equally borrowed in the first instance from the name of that primeval personages, personage who, reappearing, as it was supposed agreeably to the transmigratory system, at the commencement of the post-Diluvian world, was esteemed in his character of the Great Father, the animating soul of that world, his body. Noose and menu, so far as their original derivation is concerned, are both probably mere variations of the name of Noah, the former expressing that name simply, the latter giving it, according to its oriental pronunciation, na, with the Sanskrit men, which denotes intelligent, prefixed to it. But however this may be, 
and it is a matter of very little moment whether the conjecture be well or ill-founded, both the news of the Greek philosophers and the menu of the Hindus, though the import of each be similarly mind or intelligence, and though in the material system each be the soul of the world, are alike in point of personality the great father. <clears throat> For menu, Sadi of Rata was preserved in an ark at the time of the deluge, and Nus himself, together with three younger Noes, into whom he was thought to have triplicated himself, was born from the mysterious primeval egg. All right, so I think I'm going to end this reading there. Anyway, this book just further shows where the pantheistic uh, pagan system came from and also basically the doctrine of the Trinity, which it evolved out out of. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, I'll talk to you guys later. All right, bye.